If you say that there's structural racism, institutional racism, systemic racism, then I have to insist on one other kind of racism, and that is surmountable racism. Today I sit down with Ian Rowe. He's the co-founder of Vertex Partnership Academies, a new network of character-focused international baccalaureate high schools in the Bronx that feature a very special course called Pathways to Power. What we owe to young people is to tell them the truth about those behaviors that are far more correlated to success. Last year, teachers' unions in New York sued to block the creation of this new school system. But less than a week before the school was set to open, Ian Rowe's legal team won a decisive victory. There are no victims in our school, only architects of their own lives. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year. And Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Welcome to Vertex Partnership Academies, which we are uh, growing into what will be a world-class international baccalaureate high school. And we're also in District 12 in the Bronx. And something really important to know, in this district, only 7% graduated from high school ready for college. And so we thought it was very, very important to create a new opportunity, a new educational institution focused on excellence so that more families who were desperate for their kids to have a shot at the American dream that we could create this option. And now uh, we're here. We've opened Vertex Partnership Academies in a beautiful old Catholic school. Uh, this building, this is the old Blessed Sacrament School, which was built about 100 years ago and Justice, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor actually was a student here from kindergarten through eighth grade. So it's quite inspiring for our students to know that a Supreme Court Justice was developed in this school, in this building. Unfortunately, the Blessed Sacrament School closed about a decade ago. And so we're revitalizing the building, revitalizing the school, because this is now our home for Vertex Partnership Academies. So do you think that one school can nudge that 7% number? Well, my hope is that we build an entire network uh, of, of great new high schools. This is just the first one. But you got to start. We, we're in a community 
where yes, only 7% of kids are graduating from high school ready for college, but we know that 100% of all kids are capable of achieving at the highest level. But we need to build institutions like Vertex Partnership Academies that demand excellence, that don't lower expectations. There are no victims in our schools. There's only architects of our own lives, of their own lives. And that's what we're really trying to cultivate in our kids. And I found it really interesting as I was walking through, uh, there's this, uh, in the staircase, you oh, have, yes. again, a set of values, yep. you know, more, I guess expanded on these four cardinal virtues. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes the word indoctrination is used in a negative way. We're trying to indoctrinate our kids into the four cardinal virtues, plus also something called the International Baccalaureate Learner Profile. So those are the kinds of characteristics that we want our students to develop. Resiliency, good communicators, um, community-minded, because school is about academics, certainly math, science, language, and literature, and it's about the habits of mind, the virtues, the character-based strengths that we want our kids to, de to develop. You said a whole bunch of things I wanted to follow up on. I'm going to start with this. Agency is an empowering alternative to the narrative of equity. Mm. So much to unpackage here. I think we're living at a time where there are these dominant narratives that, particularly for young people, is pushing this idea that you're simply a victim, that there are these forces in our country that are so overwhelming, so powerful, so discriminatory, that you as an individual are immobilized, maybe because of your race, your gender. But as a result of listening to this narrative and also someone being that runs schools in the heart of the Bronx, where kids are hearing these messages all the time about everything that they can't do in their life. I've really come around to believe, to believe this idea of agency can be a much more empowering alternative of the tools that you do have to lead a path of prosperity in our country. As agency, um, it's almost like a different worldview when I think about this, because on one hand you have this idea that you can act and change your reality whatever your situation may be. And the other view is that, I guess, that, that you're just kind of given what you have and you're stuck with yeah. it. I like to describe the two narratives that I see out there. What I describe is blame the system or blame the victim. In a blame the system ideology, that's a view of our country, it's a view of America, as a place that's inherently oppressive, that based on your race, your class, your gender, there are these systems that are just rigged against you. You know, maybe there's a, if you're black, there's a white supremacist lurking on every corner. Uh, capitalism is evil, and that these systems are so discriminatory, so oppressive, that you have no agency, you have no independent ability to lead your own life. But on the other side, there's this other narrative that I call blame the victim. And in that narrative, America is great. America is not the problem. You're the problem. There's some pathology that you have. You haven't pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps. You haven't taken advantage of all the opportunities 
uh, that exist in this great country. And so between blame the system and blame the victim, that's very disempowering because either you are powerless against these systems or it's your fault that you have not been able to take advantage of these opportunities that exist in America. And I find both of these uh, narratives um, dangerous for our country because it robs, particularly young people, of this idea that they can lead a self-determined life. An agency I define as the force of your free will guided by moral discernment. The force of your free will guided by moral discernment. So if you think of agency like a vector or velocity, velocity is not just speed, it's speed and direction, hmm. right? So if you as a young person are starting to think about your life, you know that you've got free will, but how is it that you're gonna wield that will? Towards what direction? And so agency is what I like to believe if we can cultivate a new age of agency in our country, we'd have a much more optimistic, future-oriented generation that's rising. But the key point is agency doesn't just come from nowhere. Right? Because we all have free will, but there are lots of people that exercise free will that aren't good people. Right? So how do you learn how do you, to become a morally discerning person? And that's why I've created this framework that I call FREE, which is really focused on the key institutions that help young people develop agency. Family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship. Those, and we can go into each of those, but those are the four pillars that I think if we were to invest in as a society, we would start to see a whole generation of young people move away from this ideology of victimhood and dependency and grievance to hope, empowerment, and agency. You know, this blame the victim narrative that you describe on the surface, you know, it might seem you are talking about, you know, people needing to exercise agency, kind of make decisions for themselves mm -hmm. as, and, you know, overcome maybe their victimhood or, or something of this nature. But so, so explain to me exactly what the problem with this view is. Well, you know, blame the victim in some ways is infantilizing the very people that you're talking about. So hmm. let's talk about race and crime. There, unfortunately, there are disproportionate numbers, for example, of black men that are incarcerated relative to their percentage in the population. And there are those that say, well, that's just a, a result of systemic racism. It's almost as if it's almost as if they have no power. They're just in a system that's driving them towards uh, achieving those outcomes. And if you have any other uh, answer to the problem other than structural discrimination, then you're blaming the victim. You're blaming them for the very circumstances that they're in. And the thing is, at some point, there has to be some kind of personal responsibility. There has to be some recognition that an individual is making a decision towards a certain type of behavior. You know, I study, for example, um, the implosion of the family in certain segments of our society, like the non-marital birth rate, 
for example, in our country, for women 24 and under, has been in the 70% for well over a decade. It's 61% of uh, white women and 91% uh, of black women 24 and under. These numbers are staggering. And sometimes when you point these types of data out, some people say, well, that's just the result of the conditions that they're in. I say, well, that might be true and we need to work on structural factors. And again, I'll, I can talk about some things that I certainly work on, but we can't ignore that if, if people are making decisions to have children, uh, that they, have, they are a player, they are an architect um, in their own outcomes. Some people say, well, you're blaming the victim. I say, no, we just have to acknowledge that when we're looking at social conditions, we have to analyze the role of structural barriers while also recognizing the importance of individual decision-making and personal responsibility. This is why I run schools. I run schools to let kids know that they can do hard things, that they aren't just, as Martin Luther King says, just flotsam and jetsam on the river of life, that they're just, they just go with the flow, that they have the ability to turn the tide, even if their circumstances may suggest otherwise. So I think, I think what you're saying is the reality is that there are structural things, and those structural things we need to be honest about what those are, look at the actual data from studies like the ones you've described, yep. and given and irrespective of those realities, there are also tools yes. for people to use to, to transcend some of those realities. 100%. Right? 100%. So, and it's, it's not a black and white situation. No, and I think what we've lost in our country is this, this inability to deal with this nuance. In New York City, there is a legislative cap right now on starting a public charter school. So if you had a great idea to open a great school to serve all these kids that need more high quality educational options, you couldn't do it. That's an example of a real structural barrier. That is a policy barrier, that's why we should be fighting for school choice, fighting for more educational freedom. A seven-year-old can't solve that problem on their own, right? So that's an example of a structural barrier that I acknowledge. But that doesn't take the seven-year-old off the hook for being able to go to school, still apply themselves, become part of a supportive within their own family or community that will help them thrive. And I run schools to create environments to help kids build that capacity, that overcomers mindset. So that's what I say, well, we can, we can acknowledge structural barriers, which today, by the way, are often not on the dimension of race as much as it's often purported to be. But as an example, as relates to education, that's a real example of a barrier. But we have to fight that battle simultaneously to the idea of cultivating this idea of agency within young people who need to succeed regardless of their circumstance. Well, the school battle, of course, we're going to talk about because this is something that you faced yes. directly. Oh, yes. Um, what, in your understanding, is the reason for these astounding numbers in terms of children being had out of wedlock in our society at large? Wow, that's a, that's a, that's a profound question. You know, it has not always been this way. Um, it was in the 1960s, for example, in the black community that 
um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was uh, Department of Labor at the time, did an analysis. Um, it was focused on the black family, and, and, and in particular, he was focused on those segments, those segments of the black community that seemed to be sort of entrenched in poverty, dysfunctional behavior, generation after generation. And what he found was that he found a deep correlation between poverty and these sort of dysfunctional behaviors, sort of um, cycle of disadvantage. He found a deep correlation between those behaviors and this growing non-marital birth rate that existed within the black community. At that time, in the mid-60s, the non-marital birth rate in the black community was 23.6%. He said, crisis, crisis, crisis. He tried to bring a loudspeaker. We have to address this issue because if we don't address this issue. This is at the core. Hell, I'm, I'm not blaming, oh, and what's interesting is that the terminology of blaming the victim emanated right after he put this data out because all he, these critics came forward and said, all you're doing is blaming these uh, black people for victims of situations that they didn't create. It's because of a legacy of discrimination. It's because of contemporary racism. And so literally the term, blame the victim, emerged out of the criticism of that report. The non-marital birth rate within the black community today, in 2023, is more than 70%. And in the white community, it's close to 30%. So even far higher than the rates that existed in the 1960s that uh, Moynihan was talking about. So why, does, why has that happened? Cultural mores have certainly uh, shifted. There's a very interesting study um, that Janet Yellen um, and her, um, her uh, Nobel um, uh, winning husband, whose name, George Akerlof, did in the 1990s trying to understand this question because they saw skyrocketing non-marital birth rates uh, as well as deep correlations with poverty and dysfunctional behavior and crime. And they came to the conclusion that's what's called reproductive technology shock. That they said in their analysis, and be very interesting in that same study we're done today, but they claimed that it was the advent of the pill and um, abortion that fundamentally changed the relationship between men and women. That heretofore, 1950s, 60s, 70s, if a man and woman were to come together and have a baby, there was almost this implicit agreement beforehand that if this happens, we're getting married. So the whole idea of the shotgun wedding. As more options started to be created when an unplanned pregnancy um, occurred, it shifted where we often talk about a woman's right to choose. Well, men started to have the right to choose to say, well, if you now have the option of an abortion and you're not choosing one, then I, as the man, uh, I'm stepping away from my responsibility. And you can see this in the data of what has shifted over these last 30, 40, 50 years in terms of what, what occurs when an unplanned or an unwanted pregnancy comes about. It used to be marriage was a top option or adoption was a top option. That has now been flipped in that abortion and single parenthood are almost always 
in a significant percent of cases, and this is now across race, is are the choices being made by young women and men. And so that's why you see such uh, declining rates of marriage, particularly in low-income communities. And I feel this is something we as educators, we as leaders, have to restore and reemphasize the role of family and the timing of family formation for the rising generation. This all ties back to this idea of agency. Because if you're a young person growing up in an unstable family without high quality choices in education that's not rooted in a faith community, it's really hard to lead a life of your own choosing because you don't have the building blocks to help you build that sense of agency. Well, and, and it's hard for you to maybe even imagine what that would really look like. I mean, right? you know, in 2016, I had been running a network of public charter schools for about six years and we were doing quite well um, in terms of academics. We had maybe a couple of hundred open seats each year, but we had nearly 5,000 uh, people on our wait list each year. You know, this, I mean, the, the people desperate, desperate to send their kids to a great school. So we decided to move our headquarters from Tribeca in Manhattan to the South Bronx because that's where there's such a huge demand for our schools. And, and I'll always remember on July 11, 2016, we had this epiphany moment where we decided to take the team out on a walking tour to get to know our new neighborhood. You know, where's the local deli? Where's the local bank? Just so we could, you know, because we were now going to be in this neighborhood and our team was a little apprehensive because, you know, there was a, a needle exchange right on the corner where our new office was, but this is, this is where our schools were going to be, so this is where our headquarters should be. As we were on this walking tour, we see in the distance this baby blue 27-foot Winnebago truck with all these people around it that are excited to see it. Like, what is that? It's almost like the ice cream truck. These are all, but these were adults. And as we get closer, we saw graffiti lettering was on the side of the truck. And, the, and it said, who's your daddy? What is that? Well, it turned out the who's your daddy is a mobile DNA testing center where low-income folks were spending somewhere between $350 to $500 to ask questions like, could you be my sister? Are you my father? Literally, these were like DNA tests being given so that people could answer fundamental questions about who is my family? And so when you say, you know, are kids even seeing models? Absolutely. When, when kids are growing up in environments, and by the way, this exists in the Bronx, in Appalachia, in Chicago, in parts of Los Angeles, all over the country. I mean, the non-marital birth rate in this section of the Bronx where we were is 84.5%, right? So if kids aren't seeing enough models about what the building blocks are for family fundamentally, not to mention all the other pathologies that they may be exposed to, how is it that we can expect them to develop the kinds of attitudes and behaviors that lead to a life of flourishing? This is why I say we have to recognize there are structural barriers while also still holding kids accountable for their own behavior, but don't put kids in such a situation that you're, you're not acknowledging some of these factors when they don't have the models to reinforce what their behavior should be. As you're saying all this, you know, I, I keep coming back to this idea that, that 
the structural barriers that were told about or that the narratives say are actually just simply untrue and they're almost like a distraction yes from the really difficult of barriers that actually do exist oh yeah i mean you know let's take nicole hannah jones nicole hannah jones is a recognized um reporter for the new york times she was the lead um writer for a project that the new york times did called the 1619 project and uh she's a she's a big proponent of what's called reparations which is a multi-trillion dollar program where black people should just be paid um, money by the government um, as restitution for uh, slavery and past discrimination. And uh, she wrote a piece in the New York Times Magazine called What We Are Owed. And it's all about the rationale for reparations. And in it, she says, it doesn't matter what a black person does. A black person basically is powerless to close the racial wealth gap, for example. It doesn't matter if you get married, doesn't matter if you save, doesn't matter if you buy a home, doesn't matter if you get ed educated, none of those things will matter, or none of those things can help, quote, you know, close or address 400 years of racialized plundering, end quote. Like, whoa, and of course, Mind you, Nicole Hannah-Jones in her own personal life has done all of those things to lead a life of flourishing, right? And good for her because she's recognized that even whatever their barriers are, there certainly seems to be a pathway that creates a much greater likelihood of success. Even for the kid who's in the poorest of conditions, not born into the um, quote unquote most stable family structure, and yet the narrative that's often given is, well, these people are not succeeding because of structural this or structural that. You know, I often like to say, okay, if you say that there's structural racism, institutional racism, systemic racism, then I have to insist on one other kind of racism. And that is surmountable racism, meaning that Unfortunately, racism or other forms of discrimination is, is a part of the human condition, practiced by people of all races. And yet, there are also tens of millions of people that seem to be flourishing in their lives, despite these challenges. Why? What is it that we can learn from people who seem to succeed? And that is the central question that I often find the opponents of some of my ideas not willing to explore. Yeah, no, and, and as you say this, of course, I'm thinking about the central tenets of the Woodson Center. Yes. And, I, and I've still kind of, and I rant about this often, I still can't believe that this methodology that I know, I know, and I know you're, you're, you're a part of the Woodson Center too, I was very happy to learn that, mm -hmm. um, that this methodology of finding the people who flourish in really difficult circumstances and empowering the, figuring out what they're doing, and empowering them to do more of it, it just seems like something we should be doing a lot more of, you know? Well, if, if you really want to be intellectually honest, if you really are really focused on finding solutions to any range of social pathologies or social issues, you have to start with the premise that A, well, not everyone is in prison, for example, or not everyone 
is poor, not everyone is being raised in a broken marriage, or not. Every, and so, if there's or if there's a substantial group of people, even if they're in the minority overall, but if there's still a substantial number that seem to be leading a life of flourishing under conditions that seem to have others succumb, or that you're saying that's the reason that others are succumbing, then there must be something to learn. You know, we often talk about, for example, poverty within the black community. Well, it turns out that for nearly 30 years, the poverty rate for married black couples has been in the single digits. Single digits. Like, huh, what might we learn from that? What might we learn from that? And yet 70% of kids in the black community are born into non-marital households. Well, maybe we should think about the role of family formation as something we should be strongly advocating for. And then go even further. There's something called a success sequence that some of your viewers might be familiar with. And many of your viewers may not know the term, but they certainly know the series of behaviors because they may have practiced it in their own lives. But basically, if you finish just your high school degree, then get a full-time job of any kind, just so you learn the dignity and discipline of work, and then if you have children, marriage first, the data shows that 97% of millennials that follow that series of decisions avoid poverty. And the vast majority enter the middle class or beyond. That certainly seems like valuable information young people should learn, not as a prescriptive, like you must do this, but as a descriptive, saying, look, you're going to face a whole series of decisions in your life. We want to make sure you're equipped with that body of evidence that shows people just from the same conditions that you're in have made these kinds of decisions and flourished. And for some reason, the people who are the gatekeepers of information, no, 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 you can't teach that to these kids. You'll, you'll somehow be embarrassing them. Like, no, no. I mean, it's just, uh, so I fight against these kinds of ideas. Let's not, let's do what Nicole Hannah-Jones did. You know, you're not preaching what you've practiced in your own life. In fact, you're preaching something else, and that's harmful to kids. I mean, Every self-help book has this idea of agency, of exercising agency as a central tenet, however it's constructed. Yep. There's no, I mean, th that I'm aware of, there's no self-help book that says you don't have to take control of your life right. to you do to something. Wait, or you have to wait for yeah. somebody else <laughs> yeah. to, to yeah. before you can be free. But so, so, so the people that are, you know, teaching the victimhood mentality They've all, they're, they're not practicing what they preach. They're Correct. actually doing this opposite thing. Correct. It, 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 it's, it's astounding to me. I may have to do a few papers on this. <laughs> um, it's astounding to me. The, the people who are often advocating uh, for the powerlessness of certain communities in their own personal lives have exhibited the behaviors of power. And what I mean by that Typically, you have finished your education, you've had full-time work, you typically have some kind of personal faith commitment, and if you've had children, you've almost always had, um, gotten married first. It's not 100%, there are always exceptions. There, we've all heard the stories of the individual that was raised in a single-parent household and they beat the odds, and we've also heard stories about 
kids raised and married two-parent households where the marriage was dysfunctional, right? So you have to acknowledge that there's always exceptions. There's no guarantee in life. But what we owe to young people is to tell them the truth about those behaviors that are far more correlated to success. Education, work, faith, family formation, usually marriage in, before children. So the people who are often out there, the big social justice activists that are claiming systemic racism or systemic this or systemic that is the reason for all the disparities that may exist in our society, never seem to acknowledge what they've done in their own life to avoid those same challenges. And that is dripping hypocrisy. And we have to just call it out. So very briefly, I mean, pathways to power, I think we've been talking about pathways to power essentially, yeah. right? Yeah. What, what is this course? We have a class called Pathways to Power. If you teach it almost like a probabilities class, this series of decisions, here's your likelihood of entering poverty. This series of decisions, here's your likelihood of entering the middle class or beyond. This set of decisions, here's your likelihood of really leading a life of flourishing. Our job is to make sure you're equipped with the best information. So that's what Pathways to Power is all about. They're finishing up an assignment related to the seven habits of highly effective teens. So this has been our primary reading for uh, the last semester, where they're learning about goal setting, overcoming challenges, and the strategies that they can deploy to be effective in their own lives. That doesn't mean that you're not gonna face challenges like every human being, but you have within your capacity the tools to make decisions that you can be successful. This is where we start to apply all of the work that we did with the seven habits. What you're gonna do is you're gonna look at that student's academic profile, because that's all you know. You just know the grades that they have as of last week. And you're going to take this chart paper, put it in the center of your table. You need to apply the seven habits to this specific student based on what you know about them, which all that is right now is their grade. Can you stand up, Devin, please? So, for science, student A got a one. For art, student A got a one. For language literature, got a two. For global, a two. Math, a four. World language, a three. And physical education, a three. So, the habits we discussed. Pause. Before you, tell us what does that mean to you? Like, when you're looking at that, what does that make you think before going into the habits? It makes me think that student A has the potential to be better, but student A just needs to set goals for themselves. So the habits we discussed was be proactive. And we said to be proactive, you can stay after school, get tutoring, or you can ask a teacher. Um, for put first things first, you can prioritize your failing grades. For begin with the end in mind, you can set specific goals for tasks to improve grades for different classes, or you can stay after school. And to seek to understand, then to be understood, you can advocate with the teacher that you are 
lost so people know where or why you are confused. Complete your work and get notes from classmates. Good, good, good. What I really, uh, really good work and what I'll say, I didn't see a lot of people use habit, seek to understand, then to be understood. Well, this would have been a wonderful course for me to take. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, but I, I was... <laughs> No, you you were gonna say no, no. I, I, the yeah, truth of the yeah. matter is, I think every. I mean, yeah. we're we're in a society today where a lot of kids across race, because of this narrative of America as this sort of inherently oppressive nation or capitalism is evil. There's actually um, something happening to our rising generation that they're become becoming much more risk averse. They're not starting families. They're not starting businesses. There, there's this kind of malaise, especially amongst young men. You got more, more kids spending more time watching pornography, um, playing video games. They're not engaging in life. Even some data just came out recently. The kids aren't dating as much. So there's a, there's a lot more passivity. There's a kind culture. of safetyism, yes. right? You know, yes. I've been, this is a term I learned from Lenore Skenazy over at Let mm -hmm. Grow. Mm -hmm. you know, some, and and it, it's a very real thing. And also I might add, this inability to think in terms of risk, benefit, or probabilities. It's very black and white. Yeah, oh no, right? it's, it's the binary. Yeah. Right, yeah. And, 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 if you, and if you divide the world in like, that's good or that's bad, you, you lose nuance or you lose a sense of what your own role is in determining what the outcomes will be. Like what levers are within my control even if for some people the outcomes might be bad or some people the outcomes are good, but at the end of the day, it's what energy am I, I putting into my own life? And again, the message to the kids in our school, there are no victims in our school. They're only architects of your own lives. You know, at the end of uh, sophomore year at Vertex Partnership Academies, our new high school, each student will have the option to choose the International Baccalaureate Diploma mm -hmm. Pathway or the International Baccalaureate Careers Pathway. And the Careers Pathway, while you're also still taking academic classes, you now have the opportunity to do apprenticeships or internships. Like for example, we're, um, the Mayo Clinic will be one of our partners where you'll be able to choose a course of study in, for example, phlebotomy in how to um, uh, take blood. And you'll be at a New York City-based hospital maybe one day a week interning. So at the end of your uh, senior year of high school, you'll be credentialed as a phlebotomist or other disciplines with, within the healthcare arena. But the whole idea being you have optionality and choice. Because we want you to know that you're not just boxed in. You're not just, you're part of some cog in some larger system that you have agency, but there's mutual responsibility. We as a school, we're gonna create some amazing opportunities for you, but you as an individual, you have to step up, you have to rise. That's what I think the safetyism is coming from, that there isn't this recognition of mutual responsibility, right? You've gotta step up, you have to take advantage. Like, you know, and on the other side, there's gotta be people who are working towards your betterment by creating these opportunities. And right now I feel that young people are not seeing enough to let them know that they have to be the, the curator. They have to be the architect 
And then we as the grown-ups have to make sure that we're providing the kinds of information, data uh, that help them make better decisions. It's astounding to me to think that you almost didn't get a chance to realize these schools. <laughs> yes. You know, and so, but, but a, a couple of things. I mean, you also are kind of putting your money where your mouth is, because as I understand it, you were developing the school. There's this, you know, potential court case you would have to face, mm -hmm. which might have prevented you, very realistically, might have prevented you from having this school up and running. And it was just 10 days before opening <laughs> yes. that, that, that you got the go-ahead. Yes. But all sorts of very large educational institutions were dead set against you doing everything we've just talked about. We deliberately, you know, we don't, we're not going to Scarsdale with this idea of building this beautiful international baccalaureate high school. We want to go to District 12 in the Bronx where only 7% of kids are graduating from high school ready for college. One would think that there would be enthusiasm for such an idea. I'll just qualify. There is enthusiasm amongst the parents. Oh, no, no. There's enthusiasm amongst <laughs> parents, for yeah, sure. Yeah, but, oh, but, no. As always, <laughs> yes, yes. as always, the people who are desperate for options, especially to improve the, the life outcomes for their children, they're the ones clamoring for these opportunities. No, no, no. It's the gatekeepers. It's the adults, the grown-ups, who've said, no, 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 no. We know what's better. We can't give choice because somehow that'll ruin the entire system. Well, tell that to a 22-year-old mom who just wants the best for her five-year-old to start to have different choices that she had in her own life. But as relates to Vertex Partnership Academies, we said, wait a minute, there, so there's a cap. However, there are um, existing charter schools that currently end at middle school and would very much like to have a guaranteed high school that they could send their students when they're leaving eighth grade. And we said, well, that makes sense. Why don't we will run a world-class high school for all of your rising ninth graders? And we can do that for all these different schools that end at eighth grade. And the State University of New York said, that's a great idea. You're, we, we're, we're authorizing Vertex Partnership Academies to be a high school program for all these charter schools that now want to send their kids to high school. So, so, it, so it's not creating a, it's, it's not violating the cap because it's, it's existing charters that are simply growing their grades from kindergarten through eighth grade to now kindergarten through 12th grade. So very elegant, a wonderful solution. It allows new charter high schools to open. The, the United Federation of Teachers in New York said, nope, we're gonna do everything in our power to shut this down even before it opens. So they filed a lawsuit against us. So we had, we had gotten approval from the state, I think in February of 2022, in March of 2022, just when we're in the midst of recruiting staff and students, the teachers union sues to shut us. And thankfully, we were able to get Kirkland Ellis, which is an amazing law firm to defend us, uh, pro bono. And yes, you're right, the first day of school was August 22nd. August 16th was the date that a New York State Supreme Court judge had heard the case, looked through the materials, really you know, listened to what the union was saying, and completely dismissed their case. 
completely dismissed their case. And the union chose not to appeal because they knew that there was no basis for it in the first place. But they hoped by simply bringing a lawsuit, that would be enough to bring us to our knees. And we said, no, we're, we're not going to stand down. And so we opened on August 22nd. We have 108 uh, ninth graders, and we'll be adding a grade every year to build a new institution in the Bronx dedicated towards educational excellence. But, you know, this, it's not for the faint of heart. You know, you got to go in this knowing that there are people who want to preserve the status quo. Often the very people who claim to be advocating for the low-income kids who are in these schools. And we just have to fight back. Given these terrible statistics that you mentioned, right, mm -hmm. earlier, I mean, what, what, what possible leg to stand on? It strains any semblance of credulity, right? Well, if, if you're a thinking person, it does. But if you just want to fall into a narrative where you gain power through victimhood, I mean, just think of all the people who claim systemic X is the reason. It, when, when, you when you make that your claim, you basically absolve yourself of any responsibility. If systemic racism is the reason for any disparity in outcomes by uh, um, groupings by race, then you and you say systemic racism is a problem, then what can I? I'm you know I'm I'm black or I'm 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 whatever that whatever the victimized group is. I have no you know it's all because you the oppressor are imposing your worldview. And so in a weird sense, you gain power by consistently espousing your victimhood. And there are those who generate wealth, generate notoriety and attention by continuing to claim victimhood, victimhood, victimhood. And you almost have a perverse incentive never to exit because I mean, Shelby Steele said this to me in an interview I did of him. He said, in the black community, our biggest problem isn't racism. He said, our biggest problem is freedom. It was really profound. He was basically saying the responsibility of freedom, of now being in control of your own destiny, is actually scarier than, in the sense, the safety of being trapped in a narrative of victimhood, where you're constantly never asked to be responsible for your own actions. It's always somebody else who's doing this to us. Well, and, and the incentive structure is completely upside down. This is what's dawning on me as, as you're speaking here. I mean, in a sense, you, th this is the reason why um, you know, Vertex Academies can't exist because if it disproves your point so thoroughly, then your whole, your whole reason for right. operating comes into question. Right. I mean, this has been, I mean, our battle running public charter schools. If there are those who've seen, well, the reason, you know, low-income kids or kids of color are not doing well in school is, again, because it's of structural racism or structural this or structural that. And then along come a network of schools that are educating the same kids 
in the same school buildings for even less money per pupil, because charter schools throughout the country get less money on a per student basis than the traditional district system. And they, and they get better outcomes generally. Not all charter schools, so we, we have to acknowledge that. But there are a good number of charter schools that get some great outcomes under the same conditions that other systems have consistently failed kids. How else could you process that and not come to the realization, well, maybe there's strategies that these schools are adopting that we have something to learn from. But if you don't believe it, your answer is shut them down. Let's stop them before they can even start. It doesn't matter if the, the kids who are in that system are just going to be trapped in that system. That's not my problem because, again, for many of these people, you know where they're sending their kids to? private schools, they're moving to uh, nice uh, neighborhoods where they can send their kids to uh, high-performing public schools. So again, they're not preaching what they practice in their own life, right? Which is that a lot of them are exercising school choice for their own children, but restricting it for kids in low-income communities. And so we just have to fight back. When I started running schools, I thought I just need to run great schools, like that's the most important thing. And you start to realize there are whole forces of people that are just determined to shut what we're doing down and we just have to fight back. When we were, as we were discussing, you know, mm -hmm. sort of in preparation for, for our interview, yeah. um, you alerted to me to a kind of an amazing reality of another type of school choice that happened back under Jim Crow, mm. which was actually incredibly effective. Oh, yeah. But then was bizarrely shut down, you know, ostensibly again under in, under the best intentions. Yeah, yeah. So Brown versus Board of Education is arguably considered to be the most important Supreme Court decision in the last century, and um, and as you say, uh, well intentioned. This was at a time post Jim Crow. You had. Um, conditions of schools for, for black children in many places that were horrific. Plessy versus Ferguson had occurred, which basically allowed racial separation to be legal uh, in our country, especially in schools. And so Brown versus Board of Education, landmark decision, basically established this press, uh, premise that separate meant unequal separation by race, so schools separated by race, were unequal, and this is where they took it one step too far, inherently inferior. Meaning that, so, so, so not only could a state, the government, not allow um, racially segregated schools, but even schools where people had voluntarily separated themselves by race, that also was deemed unconstitutional. The reason this is important is that in the early 1900s, in the, during the Jim Crow era when kids, black kids getting an education was horrific. And, and, and there was actual systemic racism. And there was, yeah. oh my God, yeah. Yeah. clearly there was lynching. There were all yeah. sorts of terrible things that were happening in yeah. our country. And yet it's one of the greatest examples of agency and self-sufficiency in the black community. Booker T. Washington, who had founded Tuskegee Institute, he partnered with Julius Rosenwald, who at the time was the CEO of the Sears Roebuck Company. So imagine in today's world, you know, 
Jeff Bezos um, um, or, or the head of Walmart today said, you know, we're going to partner together. And so Booker T. Washington and Julius Rosenwald, they built nearly 5,000 schools throughout the South, I think 14 states throughout the South, exclusively to educate black children, black prof professors, teachers, principals, all dedicated to this idea of excellence, regardless of the conditions under which we're in. 5,000 schools, and, and while Julius Rosenwald put in money, every single school, the deal was local communities had to come and chip in money, help build the, the building. There were often one, one schoolhouse buildings, sometimes in churches, but the idea was there was ownership in the community. The, the academic achievements of these schools, I mean, Maya Angelou was a, a Rosenwald graduate, John Lewis, I mean, amazing, amazing, amazing stories. The levels of academic achievement of black kids soaring, but after the Brown versus Board of Education decision on the premise that separate meant unequal and separate meant in here inherently inferior, the Rosenwald schools, all 5,000 of them, were deemed unconstitutional. And they were all shut down within a decade. I mean, just think about, just think about that. So even in one of the most landmark decisions, these, 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 these narratives of group identity must mean inferiority, or it must be, mean superiority, oftentimes exactly hurts the very people that you claim to be wanting to help. What an unbelievable story. I'm embarrassed I didn't know it. <laughs> and, and you can't help but wonder what the world would look like if those schools were allowed to grow and flourish and you know, perhaps you know, go beyond race if they so chose. Exactly. Um, I, I think that's the idea that at the end of the day, we're all individuals. And what has slowly occurred in our country, certainly over the last decade, we've almost replaced individual dignity and personal responsibility with group identity and narratives associated with group identity. So you're no longer just, you're no longer just an individual kid, you're, you're white. And as a result of that, you're inherently an oppressor you're inherently privileged, regardless of all the other things that may be going on in your life. And that's just very dangerous for our country. Like the kids in our schools, we don't teach groups. We teach individuals with each their own capacity to feel, to achieve, to succeed, to fail, to get back up, to be resilient. And those types of lessons are learned not because you think your entire value to society is defined solely based on your skin color or solely based on your gender. That's a false promise to young people. And something else that I think is also very important is that especially in a rising generation where young people are hearing so many narratives of how oppressive America might be is that they understand they live in a good, if not great, country. A country that is not hostile to their dreams. A place 
where your dreams are actually possible. But as recognition, you can't do it alone. Agency is individually practiced, but socially empowered. You live in a country where there are institutions like the family that you form, a faith community, educational opportunities. We've got to make sure we fight to make sure that kids have those opportunities. And then entrepreneurial mindset. All of these things can exist in our country in a way that can, you can lead the life that you want. And so often, I think that's exactly the wrong message, or kids are hearing exactly the opposite of that message. And we're fighting very much to allow young people to know that the path of human flourishing is within their grasp. Well, I wish you Godspeed with that. And frankly, just tell us where people can learn more about the academies and your work. Oh, well, that's very kind of you to um, insist that our website, well, first of all, the name of our uh, school system is Vertex Partnership Academies. If you go to vertexacademies.org, you'll find lots of information about our schools in the Bronx. We're actually looking for partners uh, corporate partners who want to create new pathways of talent into computer science, engineering, healthcare, real estate industries, entities that want to create apprenticeships with students that are still in high school to discover whole new ways to pursue life opportunities. And so we're very excited to have uh, folks join us in this endeavor. There are no victims in our school, only architects of their own lives. Well, Ian Rowe, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, so I'm inspired. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for joining Ian Rowe and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek.